Well, tonight we begin one of the most exciting books in the entirety of the Old Testament. So if you turn to the book of Daniel, Daniel is in many ways the book that if we didn't have it in the Old Testament, it would be nearly impossible for us to understand the book of Revelation. And in fact, the book of Daniel is so heavily quoted from by Jesus himself in the Olivet Discourse that Jesus adds validity to the book of Daniel. And so as we dig into this amazing book, it contains one of the most specific prophecies found in the entirety of the Old Testament. It predicts accurately the coming of Messiah. Uh, It brings us into this place of understanding these world kingdoms. Uh, And so we're going to have some fun, I believe, in a biblical sense, um, understanding what it is that the Lord wants us to know. And and as we kind of work our way through the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel provides a backdrop for us for world history. Uh, We find these world kingdoms, their their rulers are very clear. uh, And as we go through this book, some of these prophecies are so precise that in fact there is a vein of thought in liberal theology that the book of Daniel could not possibly be as old as it is because it is so precise. And in fact, it was dated much, much earlier rather than its actual date, which the events are 605 B.C., Uh, Many liberal theologians have attempted to date it at about 183 B.C., very specifically because of the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes, and as he would desecrate the temple, uh, that would lead to what the Jewish people called the abomination of desolation, that it seemed that Daniel must be much earlier than it actually is. There's a problem called the Dead Sea Scrolls. We actually have a copy of it that's dated to almost 300 BC. It's also included in the Septuagint Greek Old Testament, uh, which is also much older than Antiochus Epiphany. So the book of Daniel provides prophetic evidence for Jesus himself, and it does so at least, at least at a very bare minimum, almost 500 years before Jesus is even born. And so as we dig into the book, let's pray and ask God to begin to speak to us through this marvelous prophetic book we find in the Old Testament. Father, we thank you that you are so wise that you've given us information in advance of the events, that you've spoken to us by the prophets of the Old Testament. Lord, we see this lifestyle that's lived by these four young men. uh, And we realize that we've been called out of this world and into your marvelous light, that we might live lives that are like theirs, unashamed to stand when others bow. And so God, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would bless us, that you would move mightily, in our midst, and as we study this book, Lord, which you authored by the Holy Spirit, would you fill us with knowledge and wisdom into things that we know not, 
And so, God, we bless you. We give you this time. Speak to us tonight, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You might remember that when Jesus spoke about the prophet John the Baptist, he he made an interesting statement in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 11. And, And remember the scene, Jesus is at the Jordan River, he's baptizing, and John the Baptist, this crazy, fiery character, is down in the river and he's baptizing people and here comes a delegation from Jerusalem that had come down to Jericho and from Jericho over to the Jordan River, just a few miles away, about six miles away. And, and here Jesus looks up and sees this delegation coming. And in Matthew 11, verses 7 and 9, it says, what did you come out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A, a prophet? And I say to you, more than a prophet. And so Jesus, speaking of John the Baptist, I believe could have said the very same thing about Daniel. Because Daniel was not a reed shaken in the wind. Daniel was a strong tower that believed and trusted in God in the most extreme circumstances. And in fact, as Daniel begins to write this, his story, He's forced into circumstances that made it easy for him uh, to bend like a reed in the wind. Remember that Daniel, as he begins to write, is 16 years old. He's not an ancient sage. He's not lived life. He's barely old enough to be separated from his parents. He is a very young teenage boy when he first enters into the captivity in Babylon. It would have been easy for him to cave in. Matter of fact, we would expect Daniel to cave in. None of us in this room, if if our teenage children were sent off to, let's say, Iran, and they're being interrogated by the Ayatollah, not many of us are going to have too much of a problem if our children don't exactly bear up underneath that pressure that they would cave in and maybe say some things that you would expect out of a teenager. But Daniel is going to stand when everyone else bows. He is the classic example in the Old Testament uh, of what Paul would write to the church at Corinth there in the end of chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the labor of the Lord, knowing that it's not in vain in him. And Paul would talk to us as he writes to the Ephesian church, he says, having done all to stand, therefore stand. Just do it, stand. Daniel was that guy. Daniel from a young age was was a man that was willing to stand. Instead of bending, he he absolutely was like that mighty oak tree that just, no matter what wind blows, he's going to stand there strong. And the reason this is so important to us is we live in Babylon. We live in Babylon. We have our own Nebuchadnezzars. We have a society that is largely post-Christian. And in fact, when you even mention that you are a Bible-believing Christian, you can pretty much count on being scrutinized. 
You can pretty much count on not receiving that promotion at work. You can pretty much count on having the extra duty to do in your workplace because we are post-Christian and because we stand for righteousness, we are often mocked, we are ridiculed, we are called insensitive, we were called unintelligent, we are called all kinds of things, and very, very rarely do you see someone with the ability to just simply say, I'm going to do what God told me to do. I'm going to speak what God has called me to speak. I've had an opportunity to do a number of invocations at government functions. And it's interesting to me that I'm normally asked to present my prayer ahead of time. Now, I don't know how you get the Holy Spirit ahead of time to author a prayer so that when you get there, it's actually done. But I've attempted to do it a number of times. And I've found myself in trouble because invariably, the thing that I am told I cannot do is pray in Jesus' name. Oh, I can say, Almighty God the Father who dwells on high, whose majesty reigns forever and ever. I can give many platitudes to God the Father, and he's deserving of those things. But when I pray, I pray in Jesus' name. And I've been in those situations where they'll look me right in the eye and go, don't you dare pray in Jesus' name. And I've had to, I had to wrestle with that. It's like, do I obey this official or do I please God? And so I've been uninvited several times because I've prayed in Jesus' name. But the point I'm making is this. You're going to have choices to do very similar things. When you're asked to go to that wedding where it's two men being married, you're going to be asked to stand by God. Are you going to give approval to that which God clearly says is sin? Or are you just going to cave? Are you going to say, well, love is love? Because in that sense, from perhaps those two people's position, they believe that their love is really love. But you know it's sin. Are you going to stand? Are you going to take a stand for the Lord? You're going to be tested. You're going to be tried. You're going to have your time in the fiery furnace. And the question is, are you going to trust God? That's the beginning of the book of Daniel. And as Jesus quotes frequently and often in the Olivet Discourse. And in fact, the name that Jesus assigns to himself that gets him in the most trouble, the Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 7. So when the Pharisees heard Jesus attribute to himself that name, they came unglued because they knew that the Son of Man was Messiah. And so as Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, this incredible passage in Matthew 24, where he's reminding us of what it's going to look like when the end is upon us, when the very last of the last days has occurred, Jesus repeatedly uses that title there in Matthew 24. 
and also at the same time there in Mark chapter 13. So Jesus believed that Daniel was telling the truth about him. That's why Jesus quoted him. And so this incredible book, it begins with a man that we can call definitely the transformer and not the conformer. He's not the man that is just going to be squished into the world's mold. He's going to be the man that busts the mold. He's going to be the woman, if you will. And I, I don't mean to genderize any of this because there are women who are equally called to be transformers in our world. You have the power to be a transformer as well. You see, as Paul would write to the church at Rome, there in Romans 12, what he said was, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, Daniel had an opportunity to either be a transformer or a conformer. And he chose to be a transformer. He, he chose to have his mind renewed. He chose to stand when others fell. Daniel and his friends obeyed the admonition that Paul would write 500 plus years later. And we as Christians need to have that kind of faith. Daniel was confident of his future. He understood who held it. He knew that there was no weapon fashioned against him that could prosper, even though those words wouldn't be written for half a millennia. He understood fully that no matter what happened to him, that all things worked together for the good, for them that love God and are the called according to his purposes. Daniel was not mistaken in the things that he thought and the things that he believed. He was absolutely accurate, and the story that we have in the book of Daniel bears these things out. Daniel was as confident about his future as he was about his present. And so he could say, as the Apostle Paul said, I count not my own life dear. He could say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he could say that the life that I now live, I live for him. And whatever comes, I'm good with it. He was a man that trusted God. He was a teenager that trusted God. And really in his life and in his ministry, we find exactly how our lives ought to look to the world. Our lives ought to be lives of transformation. And in fact, as, as we live our lives in the world, we actually are the chief tool that the Lord uses in this world to tell other people about himself. Did you know that? If we will not stand who know the Lord, who do you think is going to? If we won't tell the truth about God's character, his power, his nature, his glory, if we won't share who Christ is to this world, do you think Time Magazine's going to do that? Nat Geo? You think PBS is going to run a special on being a transformer for God? It's just simply not going to happen. It is your life lived in the public eye where people can see you responding to the things that come your way. That is what is going to cause people to understand the greatness of our God. 
in the workplace, when you share with people, look, I, I want to do my job excellently, but I'm going to tell you behind the scenes in my life, it's the Lord Jesus that's doing the, the greater work in my life. The reason that I know what I know, the reason I can do what I do, the reason that there's success in my life is not because I'm something special. My king is special. My, my Lord drives my life. That's the kind of guy that Daniel was. That's the kind of picture we have of this incredible young man as the story begins to unfold to us. And in a world where it's so easy for us to do what is right in our own eyes or to do what the world's doing, it's easy, amen? You're not gonna have trouble finding people that will steer you away from God, amen? You're not gonna have trouble finding people like that. Every corner you go around, every place you turn, I was sitting, I was reading through. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong impression here. I'm not a big fan of, of kind of these isolated uh, magazines that promote too much of a social or political agenda. But somehow I ended up on the AMAC, the American Association for Retired Mature Persons or something, whatever it is. And I'm sitting here reading through this. And, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, Here's all these things where you're trying to be convinced that, you know, you need a bomb shelter and you need to have more guns. And, and it's just like, it's, look, if God don't got it, all the bomb shelters and the guns in the world are not going to save you. You can prep all you want. You can own all the property out in the Mojave Desert. Uh, you can wear camo everywhere you go. And you are still going to be in this world and not of this world as a believer. And so the choice is yours. Do you isolate yourself and thereby become useless to God? Or do you do what Daniel did, which is say, I don't care if everybody else is kneeling, I'm standing. I don't care if everybody else is living in fear. I'm not going to let the enemy fear me out of this. I'm going to stand. In other words, are you willing to be like Daniel? Verse 1, Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, so this is 605 BC, 1 Chronicles uh, records for us that this is the second son born to the great godly king Josiah. His birth name is Eliakim. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, now remember throughout the history of the children of Israel, they had time after time after time again, they go into captivity, first in Egypt, they're delivered after these 10 plagues, they go into the wilderness, they wander there for 40 years, they get to the edge of the promised land at Kadesh Barnea, and there Moses is denied entry into the promised land. He dies outside of the promised land, is buried on Mount Nebo. And the children of Israel go in and what do they have to do when they go to the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They got to fight for every square inch. And because they had to fight for every square inch, here's what happened to them. 
They began to compromise. Anybody ever had that happen in your life? Don't raise your hand. Because here's what happens. Sometimes if you're not willing to fight, you will just simply compromise. It is easier to live with the devil than to resist him. And I think many of you in the room can say amen to that. It is easier to live with the devil than it is to resist him. The problem is, the book of James tells us, if we resist the devil, he will flee. But if you tell the devil, hey, let's camp together. Let's set up shop. You can live on this side of the street. I'll live on this side of the street. If you try and see how close you can get to the devil, the devil will move in with you. The children of Israel, time after time again, moved in with the devil. They did exactly what God told them not to do. They intermarried with pagan nations. They took up the pagan practices of those pagan nations. Now hear me well. You may be saying, well, we don't do that here. Oh, yes, we do. Oh, yes, we do. We take up the pagan practices of unsaved people when we behave the way the world behaves. When we watch movies that the, mo- that the producers of those movies know are going to cause you to think things a child of God shouldn't think. When you take up recreational drugs and when you take up recreational drinking and when you live your life like a heathen, pretty soon there's no difference between us and the world. And so the world goes, okay, if you're going to be a Christian, you just need to drink a little less. You just need to not actually get caught in that situation. You learn to live with the devil. Daniel said, the devil's not moving in my neighborhood. I refuse to capitulate one inch, one iota to the devil. But king after king after king, in fact, three of them, that come from the great godly king Josiah, one right after another caves in to the pagan nations. Now we as the church have to remember that is where we are. It seems distant. It seems a long ways off. But I want you to see something. Verse 2, Daniel chapter 1. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That half verse frightens me to death for our nation. And here's why. When we fail to take the godly heritage that we have and live for Christ and be transformers and we start being conformed, the Bible seems to indicate that the result is God delivers those nations into the hands of the enemy. And time and time again throughout human history, and we're going to see a short course in human history here in the book of Daniel, we find this truth Much like our Constitution, much like our founding documents, we find this truth to be self-evident. If you follow after the world, eventually God allows you to go right into the world. And in fact, in this case, he turns them over to the world. He says, look, you don't want to stand for me? Go for it. You have fun with that. It's not going to work out well. And so the king of Judah is given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, with some articles from the house of God. 
The Jewish people at this time were the only monotheistic religion on the face of the earth. They believed in the one true God. They believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were the only people on the face of the earth to do that. And so the law that we talked about this morning was very clearly in view for them. And so all of the temple ornaments, all of the temple practices, everything in the temple to the Jewish people was beyond sacred. They knew what the table of showbread represented. They knew what the incense altar represented. They knew what the golden menorah represented. They knew what the Ark of the Covenant represented. And in fact, it seems to indicate, because we never find again the Ark of the Covenant in the temple in Jerusalem, that when they went away to Babylon, the Ark of the Covenant never returned. There was no place to offer the sacrifice. It became a charade because God said, look, if you want to live like a heathen, I'm going to let you live like a heathen. Don't put yourself in that place. Make sure that you're standing. When others bow, we stand. Some of the articles of the house of the God which he had carried away into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, little G. And they had many of them. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God, not into the holy place of his God, into the treasure house. They were nothing but gold. The world wants to take what is treasure in your life and use it for its own purposes. The world wants to spoil what God has done in your life. And defile what, is God, what God has done in, in your life. And then he instructed, the, the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs. And people often ask me, well, why, why would they employ eunuchs? Because eunuchs were excruciatingly faithful. This was in some ways a penalty and in other ways because they were going to be working in the, the king's present. Um, they were very often, in essence, emasculated. There was no possibility that they were going to get in trouble with the king's harem. To bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. And so here comes Daniel and his young men who were friends. The young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge. Quick to understand who had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. And now from among those who were the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And to them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. And so here's the beginning of this story. And I want to give you a simple outline. Remind yourselves that you can download these slides uh, from our media page on our website. So if you want to take pictures, go for it. Um, but you can also just simply download the whole PowerPoint presentation. It'll give you all this information. And the reason I want, to, want you to see this is because it's important to understand that God is actually giving us a timeline uh, of human history. 
He's allowing us a little preview of what's coming. And so we find what we would call believers in Daniel and, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, this, these men that are walking godly. Uh, we're going to see Daniel have the, the ability to interpret this dream in chapter 2. Uh, we're going to see this amazing golden image, which will give us a history of the, the world's governments. Um, we, we'll have the interpretation of this dream of this tree. And then the handwriting that comes on the wall where Nebuchadnezzar is found weighed and wanting and his life is going to pass before him. And then we're going to see the most famous story to most of us, this incredible picture uh, of these men that are cast into, into this incredible situation in the lion's den. And part of what we have to come to terms with is this really kind of represents our own personal history to some degree. You're going to be called to have a godly walk. Um, you're going to have things that God's going to show you uniquely, things that you will dream of, things that you'll have visions of, things that the Holy Spirit will speak to you. Uh, you you're going to be given the opportunity to either bow down to a golden image or to stand. You're going to have times when you're going to help other people out in their walks with the Lord. You are going to be the person that ultimately others will come to and go, well, what does this really mean? And you are going to be responsible for maintaining your own godly devotion towards the Lord when the world is going sideways. And so the first six chapters specifically, but really into the seventh chapter, is kind of a picture of Daniel's own personal history. Going, what's going on in his life. The remaining chapters are the prophetic portion, this vision of these four beasts, of the ram and the goat. He has this incredible confession of Messiah that, that culminates with us having an exact date that Jesus will enter into Jerusalem. We'll digest that uh, in its totality. And then finally, we're given a little glimpse of things that are still yet future to us today. And so this incredible book, this little simple outline, and as we look at it, Daniel is going to give us a preview and we should be able to look at human history and go, was this true or was this not true? Was this accurate or was this not accurate? And so again, to give you a little preview of what's lying ahead, Daniel is going to list six kingdoms that are going to come. In chapter 2, he is speaking of Babylon. So 606 to about 539 BC, you'll notice that that is the 70 years that the children of Israel spent in captivity. Babylon described as a head of gold, a lion with eagle's wings. If any of you have ever seen the Ishtar Gates, which are currently located parts of them in Great Britain. They're in the museum there. Uh, guess what's on those gates that came from Babylon but winged lions? And so the symbol of the Babylonian Empire was in fact a winged lion. Media Persia, you know it actually today. Uh, how many of you were around when the hostages were taken in 1979? Uh, what was it then called? It was called Persia, was it not? Uh, it, it did not become Iran until a few years later. 
And so it was known as Persia. Media Persia was a much larger area that, incur, that it also included part of Turkey and Kurdistan, uh, some of the stands themselves. So uh, it, it was a much, much larger country that had arms of chest, uh, chest of silver, and it was represented by a bear uh, that had three ribs. If you look at the most ancient coinage for Media Persia, guess what's on their coins? Nothing more than a bear. If you look at Greece, uh, it was known as the leopard nation. It, it was swift. Alexander the Great conquered. And we're going to cover these things in, in great detail as we go into each of these chapters. We all know about Rome. Rome was the ruling power at the time of Jesus. Amen? Uh, what was it known for principally? It's iron weapons. Amen? And the invention of concrete if you want to know the two most prominent things. People often ask, well, when did they invent concrete? Well, the Romans invented it, or at least they perfected it. So they were the nation of iron. And then we have a kingdom that squeezes in there that is still yet future, the kingdom of the Antichrist. Ten toes of iron and clay, so they're going to be part of the Roman Empire, and they're going to be part of a new empire that's not as strong as Rome. I believe that particular empire happens to be the European Union. And so there is a coming world order. We know it from the latter portions of the book of Revelation. And when you look at these two things, this Antichrist will rise. He's going to be principally responsible for putting together a world consortium of nations. Those nations will have a one world government. They will have a one world monetary system and they will have a one world religion. That's the ten toes. The clay, the iron, the little horn, and again, we'll get any things. And then Daniel gives us a preview of Christ's kingdom, the age of grace. And so he names this one who will come that Jesus says he is the son of man. Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, and when the son of man appears, coming on the clouds with great glory, you see, Daniel is the one that tells everybody Jesus is declaring, declaring himself to be the Messiah. He'll usher in that final kingdom uh, that's, that's really going to begin with the rapture of the church, followed by the tribulation, followed by the millennial reign and the great white throne judgment and all of those things. And, and so as we get to chapter 2, we're going to find that Man's view of these nations is all of these noble metals, gold and silver, uh, weapons, things that are used for weapon, irons and clay. And you can, you can almost sense that Daniel's trying to remind us, look, these nations are going to think they're all that. From their perspective, when Alexander the Great conquered what, what we would call as part of southern Europe and all of Asia and Asia Minor, uh, nobody believes you. Here's this 32-year-old guy who's going to live a short life, and he's just simply responsible for taking over the entire world. You wouldn't think it would even happen. But Daniel gives us a picture of these, these nations that are assigned these names that are used, in essence, to describe the countries uh, that would be birthed out of them. But from God's view, it's also interesting, not only were they precious in the eyes of the world, but from God's perspective, they were also quite dangerous. Um, you, you actually don't want to run into a lion on an open plain anywhere. 
you also don't want to run into a bear uh, if, if you happen to be walking down a trail. You for sure do not want to come across a leopard unless you can run about 45 to 50 miles an hour. And any kind of dreadful beast, no matter what it is, you see from God's perspective, the Antichrist kingdom is just a little horn. He's the big horn. And so God's kind of giving us this picture. You're going to have nations that appear to be something from their own perspective and from the world's perspective. But when God looks at them, he's saying, they're dangerous. And if you look back at human history, what do we find of all of these nations, whether it's Rome or Greece or Media Persia? They were dangerous. But they themselves thought that they were great As you think on what's going on here, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom uh, of Israel, remember that you have Israel, which is the 10 tribes in the north, and Judah, two tribes in the south. So Judah plus Levi that didn't have, and the, and the Benjamites that did not have any inheritance, the, the Levites didn't. And so the story begins with us understanding that, that here are these people that have gone into captivity. The Assyrians come. Uh, it would be later that the Babylonians would come. So, so after each successive uh, attack, you end up having this, this incredible uh, picture of the children of Israel just going from one disaster to another disaster. So they're conquered by Assyria, they're conquered by the Babylonians, they're conquered by Rome. So when the Pharisees said, we've never been a slave to anyone, they were out of their minds crazy. They had always been slave to everyone. They had gone into captivity to the Egyptians. They had gone into captivity to the Assyrians. They had gone into captivity to the Babylonians. They were currently captive to Rome. And after the Romans would finish with them, we would ultimately end up with the Holocaust. Amen? So, so God was constantly reminding the Jewish people, look, I ask you to stand. You refuse to do that. The result of that is I'm giving you over. And I'm not saying that the Holocaust was a good thing. I'm saying anything but. It was the most horrific event in the course of human history in such a short period of time. You're talking six plus million people exterminated in less than four years. But God was going, are you going to stand? From Jerusalem, the prophet Jeremiah, writing in Jeremiah chapter 25, you don't need to turn there, you can mark it, verses 8 to 12. But it says this. Remember that Jeremiah and Isaiah write from roughly the same time. Uh, They will be a little bit ahead of Daniel and Ezekiel, a little bit ahead of time. But prophetically, Jeremiah speaks these words to Israel. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says, Jeremiah 28, verse 8, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north. Guess who they are? The Assyrians first. And then my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. These words were spoken before Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. So he was named. 
declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants against all the surrounding nations, and I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. And I will banish them from the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and of bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation and the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord. And I will make it desolate forever. Have you seen any pictures of Iraq? Have you noticed what it actually looks like? It is one of the most desolate places on planet Earth. And apart from the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley and the settlements that are along the edge of specifically the Euphrates River and the upper Tigris, It is as desolate as you can possibly imagine. And in fact, the city itself of Babylon lies in waste to this day. It was never rebuilt once God completed what God was doing when the Jewish people were taken into captivity for 70 years. And so Daniel comes along towards the end of that captivity. And so in December of 604 BC, Jehoiakim had cut to pieces the prophetic scroll that Jeremiah had written. So Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim, uh, both of these kings, are like, man, we're sick of hearing from the prophets, so we're just going to destroy what they said, and and maybe it won't happen. Can I tell you that the word of the Lord stands forever? And that whether you cut up the Bible, if you cut up every Bible, what the Bible says is still going to be true. If you cut up every prophetic passage, what they say is still going to come true. Because no matter what you think about what God says, what God says is truth. And so even though these wicked kings decided, hey, we'll just tear this stuff up and it won't, we'll pretend it never happened. Um, Ultimately, not only did it happen, but even after the Babylonians routed the Egyptians and then they went into Syria and they went into Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, ultimately into Palestine to besiege Jerusalem, ultimately what God said through the prophet Jeremiah came true, Babylon was wiped out. And it has never been a prosperous nation since that time. One of the odd things that happened during the reign of Saddam Hussein as Saddam Hussein began to, to look at the, at the Babylonian history, he fancied himself a resurrected Nebuchadnezzar. And so he began to fashion bricks with which to rebuild the city of Babylon and actually imprinted on them under the reign of Saddam Hussein, Nebuchadnezzar. And Hundreds of thousands of them were found by our troops when we invaded Iraq. And in fact, he began reproducing the city walls. He started to rebuild the city of Babylon. And today it's just a pile of mud bricks. As as you look at the history of of what God had declared, we, we see this story is absolutely accurate. And so the story begins, verse one, with what I would call the tipping point of the crisis 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of peace, uh, is besieged by this pagan king. Uh, In in essence, Jehoiakim becomes uh, the vassal king of Nebuchadnezzar in the summer of 605. And it is there that he kind of makes a deal with the devil, if you will. Uh, The king of Judah would have actually been deported were it not for the uh, fact that during that time, he said, well, look, we'll just serve you and it's not going to be a problem and don't worry about it. I mean, after all, we bow down to you. And, and, and in essence, they caved in uh, to Babylon. It was a crisis. It was a crisis of faith, most specifically. Did they trust God or did they not trust God? Now, remember what's already transpired in the lives of the children of Israel. They'd already seen Abraham journey from Ur of the Chaldees, travel all the way across modern-day Iraq, much of southern modern-day Turkey, much of Syria, across through Lebanon and down uh, the Jordan River Valley to settle in what was called the land of Canaan. And it was from there that they ultimately go and they're in captivity uh, in, in Egypt. And they'd watch God deliver them from, from the Egyptians. They had wandered into the wilderness and it looked like they were going to die. And what does God do? God delivers them out of the wilderness. And after he delivers them out of the wilderness, he brings them back into the land. And what did the 10 spies do? God's given them the land. He says, there it is. They're standing in Kadesh Barnea. They look across and, and they go, oh man, have you been in there? We're like grasshoppers to these dudes. There's giants in the land. And so Joshua and Caleb says, let's go get us some. Everybody else is going, I don't think so. And so God allows them to go into the land. And as they go into the land, even though they fight a lot of battles and they're defeated, basically one after another after another, each of those pagan peoples is taken into subjection to the children of Israel and each tribe claims its land. God delivers them again. That's how we get to this place in the story. They've been delivered by God. They're living as free people in their own land and they start turning towards the world. They start caving in to the world's demands and the world's ways. And and so they have this crisis of faith. And just exactly as Isaiah predicted under the rule of King Hezekiah, Uh, it would be a really difficult time for them. And actually, Isaiah said it this way, hear the word of the Lord, a time will surely come when everything in your palace, all that was of your fathers is stored up for this day, it will be carried off to Babylon and nothing will be left, says the Lord. It's recorded for you there in 2 Kings chapter 20. The prophetic future was about to unfold. They were having a crisis of faith and they failed to walk by faith. They walked by sight and they just simply made a deal with the devil. The next thing we see is the king in captivity. Look at verse two. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave. It wasn't that the Babylonians were successful. The Lord gave them over to captivity. You know, when we repeatedly do things that God asks us not to do, you can pretty much count at some point in time, God's going to say, that's fine if that's what you want. If you want to be in captivity, I'm going to release you to be captive. 
I'm not going to fight you. I'm not going to continue to just ride along with you. One of the great dangers of repetitive sin in the life of a believer is that you can become so blinded to it that you don't see that bus coming. You're blinded by the deception of sin and all of a sudden the Lord says, okay, it's not what I want for you, but it's what you want for you. Here you go. Daniel writes of this moment that the king goes into captivity. And so Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, is given into the hand of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar with some of the articles of the house of God. How painful is it when God's house is given over to the world? I watch time after time after time again. I've seen this play out in the life of individual ministries, thriving ministries that used to walk with the Lord. You want to see a tragedy here in America? Watch and see. Wander around the United States of America and see how many boarded up churches there are. Because the word of God is no longer preached from those pulpits because there's no longer people walking in the spirit in them, because there is no work of the spirit in that church, God says, look, if you want the world, have the world. Be careful, because sometimes the things that belong to God can be turned over to the world if we will not use them for his glory. It's a crisis of trial. It's a crisis of tribulation. It's it's the reason I fear for our country. You know, some of the debates that we're having in the public square today frighten me as a believer. It's like, do we really need to concern ourselves with some of the things we're concerned with when we slaughter 1.5 million babies a year? Maybe we ought to think about that one first. Instead of killing the, the most vulnerable among us, maybe we ought to ask ourselves, what does God think? What does God want us to do? Would that be something that he wants? The answer is, he's not going to have us killing our children. That's what they did in the Valley of Hinnom. They took the children to the brazen image of Molech, stoked its fire, and then put their babies on the arms of a false god and burned them alive. You know, part of the reason that we're in the condition that we're in in our country is because the church has not stood. The church hasn't said, "Mm -mm, not on my watch. It's not happening. We need to learn to stand up and say, God, whatever you want, that's what we're going to do. It's not going to be popular. You're going to have people who are going to look at you, wow, you know, just stay out of my business. No, it's God's business. God's the creator of life. God is, is the one who brings the fruit of the womb. No matter how that child comes about, children are a heritage from the Lord. The Bible doesn't have a second class of children. The Bible doesn't have children that don't count. There are no castaway children in the Bible. They were so precious in the eyes of the Hebrew people that it was unthinkable. People will say, well, there, you know, there's no mention of that in the Bible. The reason being is the Hebrew people would have not needed that mentioned because they were considered a gift from God no matter how they came about. I fear for our country. 
I fear for us as a people because of these things. I don't want to see us go into captivity. We are a blessed nation. But when we use our resources the way we use them, I wonder how long God's going to go along before he says, well, that's what you want. If he would turn over his chosen people, Israel, I don't think it's a far stretch for us to realize we're not exempt from the chastening of the Lord. And so we need to stand and we need to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, not what's right in the eyes of the public. There are an awful lot of things that are perfectly legal that are not okay with God. Amen? And so in 609, death comes to Josiah and all of his religious reforms. Everything that he had done to bring the the children of Israel back to worshiping the true and the living God, gone. And those three kings that succeeded Josiah, all, if you read their stories in 2 Kings, you'll find that every last one of them did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We need to guard ourselves against that. First you had Jehoahaz and then Jehoiakim and then Jehoiachin and these three kings ultimately all just king after king after king. It's like, man, this one's a mess and the next one is a worse mess and after that there was a mess of a magnitude of 10 and, and so as Daniel sees this, he asks himself a very simple question. What impact am I going to have for the kingdom in the world that I live in? What are they going to remember about me? You know, they're probably not going to remember where you worked. They're probably not going to remember where you lived. I don't know how many of you have had a chance to go back and, you know, look at your childhood home. Uh, my childhood home has been bulldozed. It no longer exists. Actually, that particular street in Poway used to be owned in its entirety by the Gill family. We owned every bit of it. Matter of fact, we owned about 1,200 acres. Uh, that property is probably worth billions today. Who knows? But there's no evidence we ever lived there, and nobody cares. But I can tell you what the Lord does care about. Those 50, 60 people that gave their life to Jesus today in the services this morning. Those things matter. Those things matter. Amen? So are we concerned about what God's concerned about? That's the point. Daniel was concerned about what concerned God. Because he didn't want to be in that captivity. He's going to do everything he can to get the people out of it. And so as we look at his life, the next thing we see is this incredible, critical, crucial test of faith. Now, now I want you to think about this. These are four teenagers. These are not adults. They didn't go to Bible college. They they hadn't had, you know, a well-seasoned time in ministry. They were kids. And they were related to the great King Josiah. And so they had watched the great King Josiah live his life godly. And he, they had seen the nation fall away for the short, the short period of time that they were on this earth. 
verse 3, the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel, some of the king's descendants, there it is, King Josiah's descendants, and some of the nobles, the young men in whom there was no blemish, and that phrase, no blemish, means to be that they were spotless of character, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom. In other words, these are like, these are the preppy boys. These are the, these are the ones that you'd look at and go, man, he's probably going to go pretty far. He's good-looking, you know, he's got a nice car, he's got a brain in his head. It's like, these, these, were, these were the cream of the crop, the creme de la creme. Possessing knowledge, quick to understand. They, they were, you know, Rhodes scholars. You had the ability to serve in the king's palace who might, whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Now, this wasn't Hebrew. They were going to have to learn a different language. They, they were gifted kids. And the king appointed them, and here it is, a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training so that at the end of time they might serve before the king. In other words, they were fully going to be indoctrinated in the ways of the world. We're going to bring you right into the midst of the throne room of the king and we're going to offer you absolutely every temptation a young man might bite on. We're going to give you the king's goodies. We're going to put you in the king's house. You're going to be around the king's harem. You're going to have all of the things that you could possibly ever dream of. And you're going to serve the king. It's going to be a great privilege. It's going to be awesome. And so in order for that to happen, the king's going to see to it that they get new names that are now adopted into the Babylonian culture. The world is going to try and change your name. The world is going to try and come into your life in such a way that it changes you, not you change it. And so notice what is said here. And now from among those who were the sons of Judah, remember Judah is the kingly line, amen? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of? Yeah, same family, same heritage, same lineage. From the sons of Judah were Daniel. And remember whenever you see the E-L ending on a name, that is actually God. So each one of these guys, uh, Mishael, Hananiah, this is, these are names which are associated with the true and the living God and Azariah. And, and so the chief eunuchs give them the name Daniel is changed to Belshazzar and to Hananiah, Shadrach, and Mishael, Mishak, and Azariah, Abednego. And, and so we see these, these godly guys and Babylon is going to try and stamp its mark on them. Babylon is going to try and change who they are. And it very often begins with something simple, like changing your name or changing the place you live or, or, or giving you or offering something to you that has the potential to change the way you live your life. And if ever there was an opportunity to change the way these guys lived, as the world is trying to stamp ownership on these young men, it was not going to change who they were because who they were was not defined by what they were called. 
And for us, we need to remember that just because the world calls us something does not mean that's who we are. I've had people, oh, you're one of those guys. You know, you, you, you believe the Bible is true. Yes, I do. Well, that's too narrow. You're right, it is narrow. The good news is it's not so narrow that you can't believe. But you do have to believe. You see, the world is going to try and stamp us into tolerating that everything leads to heaven. And it doesn't. Narrow is the way that leads into life and godliness, and few there are who find it. Jesus made it very clear. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. There are things about our relationship with God that to the world just, well, we we can't go that way. I mean, we need to tolerate everyone and everything. Tolerance is not a new thing, and especially tolerance for sin. That is exactly what got the children of Israel into the spot that they're in. They tolerated evil. Matter of fact, evil moved in with them. They not only tolerated it, they engaged in it. They said, well, you know, we don't, let's, let's not fight. We, we don't, we don't want to fight about these things, so let's just become like the world. We're going to secretly kind of be believers. In the world that we're in, can I just tell you, you can't secretly be a believer. Amen? You need to be a real believer. People should know you're a Christian. And when those situations come up that you know are patently not okay with God, you need to stand up and say, I'm not doing that. I'm not eating the king's delicacies, and I'm not going to sit down at the king's table. I'm not going to do this. And so we meet these godly men. They refuse to allow a simple name change to change who they are. Daniel, his name means God is my judge. Man, I, that's a great name, amen? Because ultimately God is everyone's judge. And so Daniel is literally named after God and God's ability to judge correctly. His name is changed to Belshazzar, which means the God that Bel favors. Bel was the chief God. He was kind of like the God of gods of the Babylonians. So if you had like a hierarchy or a pantheon of gods, he was the top guy. And so he kind of got a nice worldly name, but it was nonetheless a worldly name. But it wasn't going to put the world into him. Hananiah means beloved of Yahweh. I'd just like to have that name. Beloved of God. Man, I want to be beloved of God. And remember that when people named their children, they generally tried to give them a name that was consistent with the characteristics they bestowed at some point in time during their youth. These were godly young men. His name was changed to, to Shadrach, the one who's illuminated by the sun god. The sun god was, was throughout uh, almost all of the early cultures of this world. The Egyptians worshipped Ra, which was also the sun god. And so they, they try and change him into somebody who represents the, the way the world shines. Mishael's changed to Meshach, which means who is like the moon god. And so you can kind of see what they're trying to do. It's like, well, you used to serve the true and the living God, so we'll just change your name, and then you can serve our gods. I mean, after all, you're going to get the king's delicacies, the king's wine, you're going to live in the king's house, you're going to get the king's ladies, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. Now, I don't know if you have any teenagers, 
But if you give teenagers the opportunity to eat anything they want, drink anything they want, hang out wherever they want, be in the best places with the hot chicks, that's going to be a little bit of a temptation. Amen? What do they do with it? They said, not on your life. We're not having any of it. You can keep it. That's someone who's absolutely set their eyes on the prize. They're not going to let this temptation uh, come into their life. You see, the allurements here are the world's luxury, the world's prestige, the world's power. Can I tell you that the enemy has not changed his tactics one iota since the Garden of Eden? And we'll wrap up with this for tonight. You see, sometimes we think that it's different in our day and time. Now, in a sense, you can say, yes, it's different in our day and time. But the way the enemy tries to entice you is exactly the way he attempted to entice these young men. If you notice the the history of these things, the king orders that the menu uh, be given to them that violates God's law. Amen? So, so they're, they're going to have to stand firm against the most powerful person on the earth and say, look, I'm not doing it. I, I'm not going to cave into those things. There, there was a sense that the disobedience to the king could likely cost them their life. It certainly would have meant punishment. We find out it does mean punishment. They're going to be punished for this. They're not just simply going to lose a little bit of privilege. They're going to be chastised in a way that should end their life. In this, you find the echoes. You, you find, you can almost see the serpent in the background hissing the same things he hissed in the garden at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When you look at First John chapter 2, we're told exactly what the enemy's plans are. We're reminded that we have a problem, that we are not to cave into the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Every single person is tempted in those three areas. We're tempted with passion, we're tempted with possessions, and we are tempted with power. That, that is all of humanity is tempted in that way. In Genesis chapter three, what did we see the serpent do? The Fruit was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. And it will make you like God. That's exactly what John told us. What happened to Christ? Even the Lord himself tempted in exactly the same three categories. Well, just turn these stones into bread. Look, there's the kingdoms of the world. You can have them all. Just follow me. Throw yourself down off of here if you're really the son of God, if you have all that power. Passion, possessions, and power. Look what happens in Daniel chapter one. Here's the choice goodies. Go eat at the king's buffet. Gonna give you power. We're gonna give you prestige. You're gonna have total control over all these possessions and you're gonna have the king's approval. It's the same three things and it still works today so we should be very very wise to the enemy's plans 
And if you consider the difficulty of passing this test, because remember, when God allows us to be in these circumstances, when he tests us, those, those are from God. It tests our faith. The enemy tempts us to sin. Don't forget that those two things are not the same. God allows tests in believers' lives. And so this could either be a test or it could be a temptation that they don't pass. And it was a test and they passed it. These teenagers knew what was right. They knew what they needed to do to serve God. They knew what their conscience was telling them and they followed their conscience. And when Satan tempts you, he's tempting you to sin. He's tempting you to go the wrong way. But when God sees that same temptation, he sees it as a test. He says, look, that's my son in whom I am well pleased. That's my daughter that's living out her faith right here, right now, because the enemy's coming after him, throwing power, throwing passion, throwing possessions right in front of their nose and saying, look, follow me. And we're going, "Uh uh-uh, no, not doing that. That's a test, a successful test. And I want to leave you with a passage from James chapter 1. Because it puts what these young men are about to enter into as we continue this story next week. James chapter 1 verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith. There's the test versus the temptation. The testing of your faith produces patience but let patience have its perfect work that you may be found perfect (coughs) excuse me complete and lacking nothing if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask of god who gives to all liberally without reproach and it will be given to him or her let him ask in faith without doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed and driven by the wind For let not that man suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord, for he's double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. But let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field passes away, for no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat that it withers the grass and the flower fades, the beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man... Remember, one of those things is possessions. Another of those things is power, which comes from having possessions, amen? And what comes with the power and the possession is passion. But those pursuits will fade away. For blessed is the man who endures temptation. Guess what's gonna happen to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're gonna pass this test. And they're going to pass with flying colors. Blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved. Can you imagine what the king was thinking? He's going, they're, they're in the lion's den and they're petting the kitties. What is up with this? They normally eat everyone who goes in there. Who endures the temptation For when he has been approved, you'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Do you think you're going to see Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in heaven? We can add them to the list from this morning, right? Why? Because they believe my faith. 
They trusted God. It's like, yep, them are hungry lions. We're going in anyway. I'd rather be in the lion's den with God than outside with the world. Amen? That's what they do. They're like, look, okay, we're, we're not saying we really love this task that we're going through, but we trust God. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. God does not tempt. He can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one of us is tempted when we're drawn away by our own desires, enticed. And when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. We're going to see these four young guys not only withstand the temptation, but they're going to thrive in it. They're not just going to get through it. They're going to come out unsinged. Amen? They're not only going to go into the lion's den, but they're going to come out and the lions are going to go, yeah, see you later, guys. You know, thanks for coming and hanging out with us. An exciting book we have in front of us. We're going to find out that the Lord through it all is faithful. It's going to be an encouragement to your faith. Don't miss a study. This is one of those books that is just like rapid fire all the way, start to finish. There's stuff going on. You just go, man, that's my life. That's the way things are going for me. I, I feel like I'm in the lion's den at work. I feel like I'm in the lion's den at school. I feel like everybody wants me to bow down to everything. What are you going to do? We're going to find the power to stand when the world says bow. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible story, Lord, that is also truth. Real people, Lord, whose lives, Daniel's life and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Lord, we we thank you for the example that they are to us. Lord, when the world is just telling us we have to bow the knee to the world, we want to be able to stand. And having done all, therefore, actually stand, Lord, not kind of sort of bow to really stand for you in these critical issues in our time and in our nation, in our world, where the world is caving in, where where we're being told uh, that you no longer meant what you said in your word, that that anybody should be able to be married to anyone else. Lord, let us stand and, and just simply speak the truth in love. Lord, you designed marriage to be between a man and a woman alone, and for that relationship to last. And so, God, we just simply ask you to make us strong in these days. Help us to be loving in that strength. Help us to tell the truth in that strength. Exactly as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, Lord, speak ye therefore the truth in love. God, but let us stand. Let us never cave, never kneel. Let us be transformers and, and not conformers, Lord. Let us not be pressed into the mold of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we stand for you. Thank you for the life of Daniel. We pray that you would bless us as we study this amazing book. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.